This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. Okay, happy holidays and welcome to another edition of the Conference USA podcast on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, Joe Lonergan and Eric Henry here with you once again to talk about uh, some of the CUSA bowl games that happened on this uh, this first uh, fun weekend bowl season. We had a lot of really fun games that we'll get to and recap and uh, and then preview the Dos Frisco Bowls as we've just uh, <laughs> agreed to, to dub them now uh, with UTSA and North Texas in action this weekend to get some quality opponents uh eric happy holidays man how you doing happy holidays my good podcasting brother good podcasting friend fellow co-managing editor of underdog dynasty it's always good to be on with you certainly been a busy holiday here in the sunshine state want to wish a special happy holiday joe's i'm sure you will echo these thoughts as well to on Twitter at Jake Robinson ACT, who had the took the time out of his day to say, I always listen to the Underdog Dynasty podcast and then always turn it off. Appreciate the non P5 love, but the takes are terrible. Jake, happy holidays to you, sir. <laughs> I feel like it's that uh, that Bugs Bunny meme where it's like, I wish all my haters a very pleasant holiday season. <laughs> I was just gonna, the funniest part of that was he took the time to follow us first before tweeting that comment like i always try to listen but i wasn't following you before but now i'm going to follow you just to talk smack to you which is very funny to me but i was gonna say listen we appreciate the 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 interaction negative positive or otherwise i mean i prefer you send a negative interaction to me joe's a little bit sensitive i i, I can take the negative interaction you know my good friend joe he, he, he doesn't deserve that but nevertheless i appreciate like you mentioned took the time to follow and then then you didn't specify which podcast we'll just assume it's us you know we we tend to get most of the uh the hate around here but and also one other shout out before we embark on this cusa journey jensen jennings shout out to my guy jensen he's a fau alum out there in arizona i know joe someone after your heart got another fellow fan of the guar so i, I learned about the guar uh, a couple weeks ago and and now i know that the guar has uh, a sizable following out there so I figured Joe would uh, appreciate that as someone who typically gets the brunt of me critiquing him for his lack of hip hop knowledge. And then, of course, that was kind of, you know, emphasized when we had our Scott Carr interview. So I had to give a shout out to Jensen because, you know, the Guar, the Guar's got love out there. So I needed Joe to fill that love. Well, Guar also got some love from Ev, uh, from Evan Dudley, our guy from AL.com. Oh, I, which I didn't catch I was, that. I, was, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I was not expecting, uh, I was not expecting that and I was happy to see it. Evan, apparently a big fan of OG Guar when they they had their original lineup, RIP to Dave Brocky. But uh, yeah, I don't know if you saw, he tweeted at me a video of when they covered uh, Carry On My Wayward Son, of course, the classic Kansas song. And in that version, they replaced the lyrics, uh, there'll be peace with you are done to get off the couch and get a damn job, which is, which is, I, I like that version from them a lot, but yeah, um, which also very funny for the uh, 
as far as the critique of that particular episode, the guy who said our takes are terrible dropped that after the episode where the only takes we really gave were me talking about heavy metal, which sure. And then we talked about uh, Doug Gottlieb being kind of a racist hole. So yeah, I probably can't say hole, but we'll figure it out. Well, I, that says more about him than it does about us. <laughs> well, I, I think you already broke the rules that we can and can't say early on this. Well, you know what? Hey, one more take, Joe. Since, since you know, our, our friend there uh, doesn't like our takes, I just one more take that happened over the weekend that we have to get into. And that would be from one Beth Maiman on Twitter who, who said that anyone who puts ketchup on their eggs can't be trusted. I, I, need, I need to know your feelings on this, Joe, because I have very strong feelings on this. You have a big problem with ketchup on eggs, apparently. I, I, I don't really have strong feelings one way or the other. It's not something that I immediately go to. It's definitely something that I've, I've seen before. Um, my sister, when we were younger, not so much now, but when we were younger, she was definitely a, a ketchup fiend and would put ketchup on an excessive amount of ketchup on everything. So I, I guess I'm just numb to that at this point. No, Joe, au contraire. I love ketchup on X, which is why I needed to get your take on this. And, you know, uh, Beth is the associate director of NCA coverage at SB Nation. In case you haven't picked up on it by the title, she's our boss. So need to uh, just kind of get that out here and put her on the spot. We have to have her on the podcast to talk about she doesn't trust people eat ketchup on their eggs. I mean, I, I, that's I, I feel like, Joe, is, is ketchup on eggs, is that a Southern thing? Or is that just a, is that just a, you know, kind of go by person? I mean, I don't know that it's strictly a Southern thing. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest and definitely saw that from time to time. Um, I don't know that that's strong words, not trusting people who put ketchup on eggs. Very, I think the, very strong. Any, anytime you have like a, anytime you have like a kind of an acidic sauce, whether it's ketchup or hot sauce or something to that effect with something like creamy, like a well-cooked, like scrambled egg, then it usually works for me. But that's, that's the food take of the day from my end. Again, we'll have to circle back to that on a later podcast, but just need to, you know, that's the last take you're going to get out there from us. So after that, strictly bowl coverage. We'll just do what we do best. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll jump into the uh, Bahamas Bowl first then. Uh, MTSU gets their win over Toledo, 31-24 to uh, down in paradise. Nick Vadiato, big day for him, 23 of 35 for 270 yards and uh, two touchdowns through the air. Uh, you also had Mike DeLello contributing a uh, rushing touchdown there. Uh, really kind of a complete game for MTSU. But, you know, Eric, I don't know how much of Toledo you've watched throughout the year. We talked about it a little bit when we previewed this game, but in addition to MTSU kind of correcting a lot of the issues that they've experienced all year, Toledo looked real bad. Um, so I don't know what was up with them, but shout out to uh, MTSU's defensive line as well. In the second half, especially, they were creating all sorts of problems for uh, for Brian Kobach and the rest of that Toledo offense. Yeah, well, it's interesting, Joe. This is the thing that I think I kind of took away from this game. I did have a chance to catch uh, the, the bulk of it. And you asked me how much Toledo I've seen Having seen much Toledo since, you know, having to really study up on them when FIU took on them in the Bahamas Bowl a few years back. But obviously, I've seen a lot of Middle Tennessee State, and this may have been one of the more complete games that they've played all year. Even in some of their wins, it may have been, you know, some of the byproduct of maybe, for example, you know, Nick Vadiato or Mike Lille, even when he was starting earlier, um, getting some incredible performances there. Or maybe it was the byproduct of, Chase Cunningham, because Chase Cunningham was initially the, for the uh, quarterback who took over um, in the, the mid part of the year. But this in terms of a complete game, yeah, the score is 31-24. But really, if you take away the one big bomb to, 
Matt Landers. And shout out to Matt Landers. He's a guy from around my way in St. Pete who usually signed with Georgia. He looks to be all the part of an NFL receiver at 6'5", 205, and still running a 4'4". So he caught a 90-yard bomb, I believe, in the second quarter. But if you take away that, I mean, Toledo didn't really get much going um, in the in the first half. He, I mean, just in my mind, you look at the – you have the 17 points in the second quarter, of course, the touchdown in the fourth quarter. But if you take away that bomb, this game really isn't even as competitive as the score might uh, might show. So, again, in my mind, it's a really complete game overall. I just, I don't know about you, Joe. This Middle Tennessee State defense really stepped up and played the part. And it'll be interesting to see how they kind of look heading into next year. DQ Thomas, Greg Great Jr., Reed Blankenship, probably all going to be gone. Um, Got to imagine that Jay Ferg, Jordan Ferguson, after you know being a, a first team All Conference USA selection this year, he's probably gonna be looking to see his uh, future in the NFL as well. So definitely be interesting to see what that defense looks like next year. Jerante Davis, who had seventy something tackles and a handful of sacks, entered the portal before this game, so he's no longer with the program. Be interesting to see what Scott Schaefer's defense looks like next year. And the reason I'm emphasizing them, Joe, is because their play really picked up towards the end of the year, right? So, of course, that's momentum you'd love to build on into next year. Definitely going to see some different faces there. And even offensively, when you look at the receivers, guys who had good games like Jaron Pierce, Yusef Ali, C.J. Windham, a lot of those veteran receivers from Middle Tennessee State, this is their swan song, their final game. So good to see them go out with a win. Good to see uh, you know, the fighting Rick Stockstills. And if there's one thing, Joe, that I think we've kind of learned about Rick Stockstills' tenure, it, it, it listen the years that you think you're going to end up with three and nine or four and eight it's more than capable of going seven and six and eight and five and i don't want to get into a larger discussion about what middle tennessee's ceiling is but it just always feels as if they're going to be right there in that discussion for six seven eight wins every year um yeah they're going to have the years where you know you have back-to-back four and eights but more or less it just i guess just looking at this record mtsu seven and six just doesn't shock me this year I was just getting ready to say it really has seemed like over the past three, four years with this MTSU team, we don't typically see them play their best football uh, until their backs like really against the wall until um, we see their starting quarterback go down this year. We saw Bailey Hockman uh, step away from football and then, you know, uh, Chase Cunningham came in and uh, and then obviously Nick Badiato and the split snaps after that. And that's kind of when we saw them really, you know, start turning it on and, and play the kind of football that got in uh, that got them into this position in the first place. So I don't know. I don't know what that says about how they start seasons, but uh, to your point, this MTSU football team, definitely a lot of, a lot of grit to be able to come back from some early season missteps and, finish the year with a winning record and a, a nice little piece of a uh, nice little piece of hardware from this bowl game in, in the Bahamas. Yeah, undoubtedly. And I know I did right. talk about a lot of the seniors that they'll lose. I think the big thing, the big storyline that when you look at middle Tennessee heading into next year, obviously is the quarterback situation looking at Nick Variato, Mike Leo or Chase Cunningham, right? You know, you're going to have a three man race, see where that plays out. But definitely if you're Rick Stocks and if you're a blue Raider fan, you have to be encouraged by the fact that the two younger guys in specificity, the true freshman of Vadiato, you got kind of the performance you got from him down the stretch of the year. Cause that at least gives you something to next year that, all right, we're not starting from scratch. Right. So that should be uh, interesting to keep an eye on. 
Absolutely. Uh, in that case, then let's move on to the next bowl game from CUSA slate. That was App State and Western Kentucky in the Boca Raton Bowl uh, this past Saturday. Western wins that one 59 to 38. But of course, Eric, the big storyline from this game was Bailey Zappi setting a new NCAA FBS single season record for both passing touchdowns as well as passing yards. Uh, Joe Burrow no longer the record holder in touchdowns specifically. Um, so, I mean, that was kind of the big story. But, you know, I want to give a, a shout out to this Western Kentucky defense as well. I think one of the things we were a little concerned about for them was being able to keep uh, Chase Bryce and that uh, Mountaineer offense in check. And they, especially in the second half where they only allowed 14 points, um, they did what they needed to do against uh, an App State offense that really never seems to go away if there's one thing we know about them from their body work this season. Yeah, Joe, I had the privilege you know, to cover this one. It was, Joe, it was really neat to uh, get a chance to cover a game in which you saw two, and not just any old record, not that I want to downplay a player breaking a record as if it's just, you know, ho-hum. But <laughs> there's a difference between breaking the record, I don't know, for, you know, most forced fumbles in a year, and someone like Bailey Zapp, who's breaking the record for passing yards and passing touchdowns in a year. So I think that was really special to watch. And you talked about the Western Kentucky defense. Yeah, it was a struggle for both teams in the early going. I had the privilege of covering the Cure Bowl the night before, and it looked like the high scoring in that game just going to transition right over into this one. I think between both teams, you had a combined, what, 30, quick math here, uh, 54, 54, 55 points in the first half. Definitely looked like, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, it was going to be a shootout each way. But then in terms of Western's defense, they stepped up the first drive of the second half. The game going into the score going to that point was 31-24. And that was where you really need to look and see, see what was it, a 20, yeah, 20, excuse me, 30, 31 to over. I had that right. And and for, for App State, you know, they're looking to keep pace with Western. That first drive, they drive into the Western red zone, but Cameron Peebles ends up fumbling. A.J. Brathwaite's able to force the fumble. He was a very feisty player, Joe. I don't know if you call it. I, I tweeted this out during the game that he was just getting in, you know, kind of some scrums with pretty much any App State defended, any App State offensive player who wanted the smoke post-play, like A.J. Brathwaite was there to talk to them post-play. And luckily, he's able to carry that play over into uh, the second half. They're forcing that fumble, which, again, App State on the verge of making that a 31-31 game. But against Western Kentucky, just any opportunity that you don't get, you know, you can't put the ball in the end zone, that's an opportunity for Western to potentially extend a lead. And when it's a seven-point lead, you're almost uh, virtually uh, assured of looking at being down two scores. That's what happened when Bailey Zappi and the offense drove down the field and scored. And, yeah, just to kind of, again, to talk about the records, you know, really special to see um, the passing yards record, I believe, was broken on a, I believe it was a 37-38 yard pass to Jarrah Stearns and then the touchdown record um, broken down there on a slant play. You know, it's 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 kind of it's funny, Joe. I had an opportunity to see this. They got the ball down within the red zone. And listen, we all know that Western doesn't exactly run the ball a ton, but it looked and I, I don't want to speculate for Tyson Helton and Zach Kitley, but it looked as if they had sent in some sort of package that would have been maybe a run pass, right? Where they were looking for, you know, two plays down there. And you kind of saw Bailey Zappi like kind of kind of wave his hands like, no, nah, like I got this, you know, because then they made a quick substitution and the player, uh, one of the running backs, I believe it was Noah Whittington, 
had come back and come on and he went back off. They sent another receiver back in and two plays later, you know, Zappy hits Mitchell Tinsley for the record breaker as far as passing touchdowns. It was a great game to watch overall. And I did note post game that, you know, you can't find a more humble kid than Bailey Zappy. The game was over for probably, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. And of course, Joe, you've covered bowl games and know how this works. You have the whole bowl ceremony. So that's going to take an extra uh, 10, 12 minutes, you know, as is. And then, uh, any an extra 10 to 15 minutes after the game bailey zappy was out there in the field taking pictures with anyone who wanted a picture with him he was there to take a picture so he was probably the last hilltopper off the field um which he certainly could have been the first to go do media but he, he was the last so it was really a uh, nice to see that and yeah just overall great great way excuse me great way for western kentucky to close out the year nine and five great year for uh tyson helton company and we'll see what happens as they try to transition this into the offseason maybe Ch- uh, chance mcdonald will be the guy next year as far as running that air raid. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm fascinated to see what decisions are made and, and who steps up in the wake of the departure of both Bailey Zappi and Zach Kitley and uh, several other offensive players who are either graduating or transferring or moving on to the NFL. But um, I have a few things about uh, this game and, and kind of where Western goes from here as a result. First off, I, I want to say, A, thank you to App State for – the work that they did in the buildup to this game to raise money and collect resources for tornado victims in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Obviously, all of the uh, after effects of that storm are still being felt. And um, that was just a very classy move by, by that school and that team. So kudos to you guys and, and huge, you know, uh, great game in this one. Very classy team, App State. Also, uh, for Bowling or for Western to win this game. So recently after, um, it was it was just great to see them kind of be able to give hope to, uh, you know, Warren County and the surrounding areas following such a crazy time. Um, so obviously, congratulations to them for being able to do that. And then one thing I, you know, on a more general sense, I don't want Western fans to lose sight of is how special this Western Kentucky offense really was. And hopefully, you know, they, they can appreciate that, like teams like this, your offenses like this and how productive they are really don't come around very often. So take a mental picture and, and cherish it because holy cow, are we not going to get an offense that's as efficient and as in tune with each other as what we saw from Bailey Zappi and Jarrah Stearns and Zach Kitley this year. And, you know, that's something that we don't even really see as much in the NFL anymore with how much turnover there is someone uh, or a group rather that has had so much time, to play with each other and build chemistry where they can have moments like the one that you mentioned where they were driving in the red zone and, uh, you know, Zappy's able to, you know, communicate with the hand signals to the sideline and, you know, basically able to have them put that confidence in him to execute what they need to, you know, get Zappy to the record and obviously put them in a better position to win the game. So, you know, very special player, Bailey Zappy, very special team for uh, in the history of Western Kentucky football, uh, despite the, the losses. So, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I, I can't stop thinking about what this team would have been able to accomplish and what, you know, Zappi's uh, award season might have looked like if they had won just even one more game against one of these P5 teams. You know, if they, had they been able to pull off that Indiana game or that Michigan State game. But I've written plenty about, you know, Zappi being uh, snubbed for awards, so I won't get too much into that now. But um, great way to end the year for Western Kentucky. And uh, I'm curious to see, like you mentioned, how they rebound from here with uh, the quarterback room, especially. 
Now let's talk Independence Bowl. Um, <laughs> this game was this game was fun. Uh, UAB wins this one, thirty-one twenty-eight over the number thirteen BYU Cougars. Uh, second bowl win ever for the Blazers. Uh, Bill Clark, uh, obviously very happy after this game. Um, and Tyler Algier for BYU, 192 yards and three touchdowns. Huge day for him. So he becomes uh, the Cougars' uh, new, uh, I believe he became the record holder for single season rushing touchdowns. However, or rushing yards rather. But Dwayne McBride, anything you can do, I can do better. Uh, 28 carries, 183 yards and a touchdown. Um, you know, I don't, obviously lower yardage total, but I think it was more significant for his team and being able to run the clock and keep that BYU offense uh, off the field. But this game was pretty much exactly as I thought it would be. It was a lot of just, you know, linemen getting into some uh, significant battles in the trenches, uh, running backs dictating the game. And Dylan Hopkins had a few really key play action passes. And late in the game, BYU really didn't have an answer for that. And like I said, they really needed, uh, the Cougars really needed to have an answer for that and they just didn't so uab able to put this on ice and uh, get a significant win for the program huge win for bill clark and a company the fact that they're not able to make it to the cusa title game for the first time since the program's rebirth i think that was um some point that in my mind not that they were losing any momentum i don't think it was that at all but in my mind, it's a matter of how with when you have a chance to face a number 13 team in the nation and Conference USA, as we all know, has struggled in bowl season recently. And UAB has been for better or worse, you know, in my mind better, but some people would say worse, the cream of the crop in Conference USA over the past four years. How would they stack up? How would they match up against a clearly a very talented team out of uh, Mountain West and BYU? And to get this win was just huge. We talk about it a ton on this podcast, but the ball game that Dylan Hopkins and offensively for UAB that they played couldn't have been better. I mean, it's the only thing you could have taken away was that interception. But the 19 to 23, that level of efficiency, Joe, in my mind, if UAB is going to get, if they're capable of getting that level of efficiency, yeah, 19 to 23 is probably, you know, a bit much to ask, right? Quick math, or that's something like 80, 82% completion percentage, I believe. That's going to be unreasonable. But if they can get 70% completions and then get the type of rushing attack that they got from Dwayne McBride and Jermaine Brown, they're capable of playing and being damn near anyone in my mind. You know, that's that's where we've talked about UAB relying on the defense so heavily over the past few years. And that's not to say that they haven't produced offensive uh, yards and, and points and success. But just the fact that the defense has been the driving force. But if they can get this level of offensive efficiency and this level of, you know, Listen, Joe, look at this way. They the game started out 14-0. And that's not to say that UAB hasn't given, you know, the, the offense hasn't given the defense, um, put them in, in positions to succeed. But it feels like there have been a fair, a fair amount of games over the past year, few years where it's been the defense providing that stop or two that's needed for UAB to then put points on the scoreboard to take the lead. Not necessarily playing from behind, but just playing in close games. If UAB can put their defense in a situation that they can play the way they do and they're up two scores, they're going to continue to be cream of the crop in CUSA. And quite frankly, <laughs> when they move on to the American, they'll be that good as well. So that was really my takeaway from this game, of course. And, and they did this without Chris Mull, someone who was a great player for them, entered the transfer portal, will take his talents elsewhere. So 
Great game overall, Antonio Moultrie with nine tackles, seven solos, four TFLs. That's really, when you talk about not having an answer, especially in the second half, our really stingy UAB defense starts right there. And again, kudos to their offensive play and kudos to Bill Clark and company. Yeah, I mean, I think this is evidenced by just the amount of games that they've won and the amount of uh, the amount of trophies that they've won in the past four or five years. But UAB, I don't think there's been a more balanced team since they came back in Conference USA than them in terms of building an offense where they can hurt you through the air and on the ground and just a defense where, like you said, if you put them in the position where, you know, this game is yours to win, go do it, they come through a large majority of the time. And they were able to do that on national TV against the highest ranked, uh, you know, opponent. I mean, this was their biggest win against the highest rank. I'm butchering what this accomplishment is, but this was the highest ranked opponent they beat. How about that? That That's accurate. Um, I couldn't get the words out there. My goodness. But yeah, it's funny. After this game, looking at the, the Twitter discourse, um, there were... Albeit, you know, most of the I, I know a lot of BYU fans and most of them were just like, wow, I don't know what happened to us. B, UAB played great. But there were a, a few people out there in the desert out by Provo and Salt Lake City who were just real indignant about losing to a team that, quote, no one had ever heard of before and just all kinds of uh, UAB slander. So uh, to all those haters, I wish you a very happy holiday season. <laughs> Is that just going to be our version of, you know, you know, bless your heart? Is that what that's going to be? I wish you, I'm going to say like, I'll be wishing you a happy holiday season in like the 4th of July or something along those lines at this point. But yes, it, it also just tickles me that there's people in the desert who like in Utah, who just hate UAB now, who hate the university of Alabama, Birmingham uh, now for this. And like, they won't even admit like, I don't know. I mean, granted, you can't base the behavior of an entire fan base off of uh, two or three people on Twitter. But there were there were some people, some very vocal people who were like, no one's even heard of this school. We our athletic director should have just denied the invite and all this stuff. And it's just like, dude, you, I mean, granted, you know, BYU had a, a couple guys hurt, but like, come on, <laughs> like, can't, you know, have that kind of disrespect for a program that's won, you know, two league titles in three years. No, I, I did see some of that. And like you said, we're not going to judge an entire fan base on the nonsense of a handful of people. But I did see what you were talking about. Some BYU fans who felt that they're high and mighty and shouldn't have even been in a on the same field as little old UAB. Well, you know, sometimes you see what happens there. The upset happens. And hey, this isn't taking thing away from BYU. It had a great year. But to act as if UAB is some incompetent program that – you know, this wasn't quite a Division three team beating BYU. So, no, I saw what you saw. And, uh, hey, they they have all their time in the offseason, the uh, the mountains, uh, the Mountain West over there to discover who UAB is now. Man, like if you're just mad about going to Shreveport, that I can understand. But put some respect on Bill Clark and the UAB Blazers, as far as I'm concerned. I want to say that was Joe Lund. Did I say that right? Respect? What I say? Uh, <laughs> say, say it one more time. Respect? Uh, yeah, there you go. You got to put the... <laughs> Especially, listen, we're talking about a game that happened in Louisiana. Shout out to Birdman. You got to be respect on my name. <laughs>
All right, let's talk about the New Mexico Bowl. Fresno State beating uh, a valiant effort by UTEP, 31-24. to 24. Uh, Bulldogs finished the season 10-3, and three, uh, whereas UTEP, they finished 7-6. and six. Uh, There was some question as to whether or not Jake Hayner was going to play in this game for Fresno State, but he did finish 26-41 uh, for 286 yards and a touchdown there. Um, you know, again, this game was... UTEP's uh, UTEP was right in this until the very end. So um, obviously as a CUSA supporter, a little bummed we didn't get to see them uh, finish their season with a bull win. But um, what Gavin Hardison was able to do, what uh, Ronald Awat was able to do, uh, just a really fantastic effort from the Miners. And I think they have a ton to build on going into next season. So hopefully we see them in a bowl game again real soon, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. Want to quickly note uh just it just warmed my heart there that little laugh that joe gave in transitioning to this game that's the same laugh that i've been giving for the better part of uh three years on this podcast when joe makes a reference i just try to laugh through it uh, joe gave that same laugh to me it just warmed my heart to know that you know we were able to have that moment there because I, I caught it and i'm hopefully listening to this podcast got it but as far as this game is concerned it feels like something we've been talking about all year joe is gavin hardison 12 of 25 for 252 they're almost their offense, Joe, is almost starting to resemble what you saw with UAB in terms of boom or bust. And I'm talking about the passing game here. And I think it's going to be interesting. You talk about what to build on for next year. In my mind, Joe, we've talked about this for a while here. I, I, the game that uh, that I really first noticed this with Gavin Hardison was last year against Louisiana Tech because, of course, they started out, and that was the year they went, what did uh, UTEP go, three and four, three and five last year, if memory serves me correct. Um, but that was their first real challenge in terms of progressing and seeing where the tide would turn as far as this UTEP program. And the thing I took notice of, Joe, Gavin Hardison, hell of an arm. I'm sure you notice this. He has a rocket cannon for an arm. It's just a matter of being consistent in the accuracy. And I think Wherever UTEP goes next year, I don't want to, you know, turn this into the way we talk about Tyler Johnson or really UAB Corbett as a whole the past few years. But spotlight's definitely going to be on Gavin Hardison and, and Dana Dimmel to see if they can get him to the next level because he looks the part physically and certainly has the arm. But just building that consistency again, when you have guys like Jacob Kong and Justin Garrett, and we'll see what their futures are because Justin Garrett, more than likely, he's going to be leaving. I, I'm not 100% sure if he. Number two has an opportunity, excuse me, to take advantage of the extra year. I don't believe he does because I, I think he was a Juco guy. So I believe he uh, saw his final game as a minor in this bowl game. And then Jacob Cowing, someone who has been one of the top receivers in the conference USA for a while now, had 69 catches for over 1,300 yards and seven touchdowns. I mean, I don't know how much more he can really build on those numbers. He's certainly eligible to come out. So to see where, the, A, what receivers they have coming back next year and see what they can get out of Gavin Hardison going forward to kind of bring it back to this game. The things that plague them, you know, in terms of when they weren't able to be competitive is really what hurt them here. So I want to give them credit because this is a very solid Fresno team. You know, they end up with 10 wins on the year and very well coaching. Jake Hanner, very good quarterback. Jordan Mims saw 29 carries for a buck 65 and two touchdowns. But I just think for UTEP, Joe, and I don't know, I'll toss it back to you on this. I definitely want to get your thoughts on this. You're going to lose praise. Amahule. You're going to lose. Uh, a couple guys on defense, as I mentioned, you may lose two receivers. You got very strong running game coming back, but just want to run this down here, right? Uh, and I, I know I've done this on previous podcasts, so forgive me for being repetitive, but your wins, New Mexico State, Bethune-Cookman, New Mexico, ODU, Southern Miss, La Tech, Rice. Your losses, Boise State, Florida Atlantic, 
UTSA, UNT, UAB, and then Fresno. Of those losses, you finish the year one, two, three, four, five out of your last six are L's. How do you feel about that if you're Dana Dimmel heading into next year? Yeah, I mean, it's not great. But at the same time, you know, I think it's one step forward from where UTEP was a year ago or then two years ago. I mean, granted, they, they wouldn't even have had that cushion, you know, two years ago to uh, even be in a position to make a bowl game. So I think it's that's the next logical step forward. And with all these JUCO guys that they're that they're signing as part of this uh, 2022 class, I think that's definitely going to help having you know, just such a, an older team, a little bit more of a, a seasoned team, a veteran team to be able to, you know, know how important it is to play well down the stretch and, and finish the season strong. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, UTEP's not a perfect team, obviously. So um, being able to close out a season with uh, wins against, you know, some of those teams that are in the next echelon higher than you, um, you mentioned some of their wins. And I think a lot of those wins are obviously against teams that, I think are still kind of in that, that basement area where UTEP was last year and two years ago. And then they played a lot of these teams really close too in some of these games that they lost and some of these teams that are, you know, maybe just a little bit further along in the traditional development of G5 schools, obviously with, you know, FAU, Boise State, that sort of thing. They've, uh, you know, they've been able to, you know, be successful for, more sustained periods of time than, than UTEP has in, in quite a while. So uh, like I said, I think Dame, uh, Dana Dimmel has something to, to build on moving forward here. Um, and obviously UTEP has some, some things that they need to improve upon, but the base is there. Yeah. And listen, I don't want to sound as if I'm coming down and trying to, you know, poo-poo on, on UTEP's record, because obviously this is much better than they've been over the past half decade. But it just feels to me, again, as you transition into next year, Maybe if you look at it in terms of steps, right? This was crawling before you learn how to walk. But next year, we're going to see if they can walk. The only thing that is, again, worth noting is a lot of the veteran guys who've had to build to get to this point, the chance is not going to have them next year. So we'll see what they, they are able to pull in recruiting, what they're able to have as far as guys who can step up, guys from this team who really learned, okay, we can have some success and win, but can't emphasize this enough. I think their 2022 hopes really hinge on the development of Gavin Hardison. You're absolutely right. That passing game is going to be incredibly important to them in 2022. And uh, we'll see how they uh, improve upon that in spring ball and beyond. All right, let's talk about the New Orleans Bowl. Uh, Marshall and number 23, Louisiana. The Cajuns take this one 36 to 21. Uh, Levi Lewis, 19 of 31 for 270 yards through the air and a touchdown uh, was effective when he needed to be. And then for Marshall, we saw another fantastic game from Rashina Lee, 20 carries for 160 yards and three touchdowns in a losing effort. Um, obviously, if you're a Herd fan, you wanted to see them come through and uh, win this game. Uh, just wasn't in the cards. Uh, and, you know, part of that was because, unfortunately, you know, we've talked about Grant Wells needing to, to step up in high-pressure situations before. Um, not his best game. 15 to 26 for 99 yards through the air, no touchdowns, and an interception. So uh, that passing game simply was not where it needed to be for Marshall. And uh, listen, Louisiana is a heck of a team. You look at what they've been able to do, incredibly balanced, incredibly strong in the trenches. Billy Napier knew what he was doing when he built that program. And Michael DeSormo has got a lot of really strong pieces to work with moving into next season. But to keep this uh, to keep this focus on the CUSA combatant, 
strong season for Marshall. Charles Huff's got something to build upon, but I don't know. I mean, I don't want to come down too strong on, on Grant Wells, but I really didn't see the progression I was really looking for from him this year. But I, I think there was plenty of other uh, good pieces to focus on in terms of what Marshall did well. But, you know, that one kind of sticks out, and that's the nature of the quarterback position. Yeah, Joe. So you talk about the, his development this year. It's it's a tale of almost two seasons in a sense, right? Because he certainly had moments where he looked good. And you look at the final numbers. Joe, he threw for 3,500 yards. I mean, it's, you know, 66 percent completion percentage 3500 yards 16 touchdowns 13 picks in that sense he did develop but it's a matter of when do you do it and against who so i'm going to run down a couple quick things here and then i'm going to bring it in specificity to this bowl game against western kentucky 10 of 14 for 76 yards right like you have the great games against navy and north carolina central then you have a solid game against ODU, a solid game against UNT, a defense that, while they certainly played better in the second half of the year, did struggle. You have a very efficient game against FIU, 20-25, but I mean, you know, who didn't last year? I'm just looking at, in terms of their wins, Joe, the best game, I guess I take that back. Um, I I was going to say the best game you had was against Charlotte, but the best game probably was against FAU, 26-38, 351, a touchdown interception. So he had moments that he looked better. So, I'll take, I don't want to say take issue. I'll slightly disagree in terms of progression. Um, I think he did progress this year. It's just a matter of, again, when you need it. You can't have the game to do against Middle Tennessee where you go one touchdown, two interceptions, one touchdown, two interceptions against Eastern Carolina. And then this is where it just gets, and it's not all on one guy. You know, we've got to keep this fair. It's not all on one player. But I'll just read this off to you, Joe. Second half, Marshall's offensive drives. Three plays, five yards, punt. Six plays, zero yards, punt. You have the 13 play for 63-yard drive, which ends in a touchdown. That was their final lead of the game, 21-16. Three plays, five yards, punt. Three plays, nine yards, punt. Three plays, negative 15 yards, punt. Three plays, six yards, fumble. Again, not all on one person. That, that's an offensive failure. But that was really what hurt them in this ball game. Uh, you can talk about the fact that, you know, UL, uh, Louisiana, scored 20 unanswered points in the fourth quarter. But damn, a lot of that was just a matter of offensive ineptitude and, quite frankly, Marshall putting their defense in bad situations. Yeah, that's that's a solid point. I mean, you can't expect the defense to do everything. But also, Louisiana ended this game with 20 unanswered points. So, I mean, as much as that, I get, you know, that's on both sides of the ball, really. I mean, if you're the offense, you have to be able to answer back. And if you're a defense, you've had that entire game to really come up with uh, a solution to keep uh, Levi Lewis and Amani Bailey contained. Uh, Bailey finished this one with 17 carries for 94 yards and two touchdowns. And then Levi Lewis was a particularly potent runner, carried the ball 12 times and picked up 74 yards, uh, had one carry that, of course, led to that uh, really uh, awesome picture. Uh, with the purple background and uh, the Marshall <laughs> linebacker kind of jumping on top of him. That was, that was dope, but um, I digress really not being able to contain the run, I think is what ultimately doomed uh, Marshall here, which is odd because they, they had played really strong in terms of just being a nuisance for run heavy offenses this year, at least based on how I remember things, but yeah, not, 
the kind of performance you were looking for to end the year if you're Charles Huff. But we'll see if his uh, recruiting strategy of, uh, you know, keeping a roster of 80% players from within five hours of Huntington pays off in the long run. Yeah, definitely would be interesting to see the recruiting strategy heading into 22. And, you know, I guess, that, again, you and I both have similar feelings of Marshall. I guess we kind of disagree a little bit in terms of the ending of this game. You know, you say really the Marshall's defense inability to stop certain things. And I think, you know, certainly that was part of it, but not helped by what is it? Six drives that ended in punts, whether it was three plays or six plays. So essentially, you know, two series and punts certainly didn't help the Marshall defense's uh the Marshall the the Marshall defense's uh, ability to do anything. Both sides of the ball, I think Marshall has some uh, some pieces to build off of here, and hopefully these experiences from the last two years of putting yourself in positions to succeed and not following through. Uh, you know, in terms of not winning the East and not winning the bowl game. Uh, hopefully they learn from that and come out bigger, better, and stronger next year. All right. And to cap off uh, recaps for what we've so far in bowl season, uh, had Tulsa beat Old Dominion 30-17 to in the Myrtle Beach Bowl on Monday afternoon. Um, Shamari Brooks for Tulsa, 26 carries for 107 yards and a touchdown. He moves into second place all time in Tulsa's, uh, rushing record book for career rushing yards. Congratulations to him for old dominion. Honestly, I was just looking for a bigger, bigger performance out of Hayden Wolf. Really. Um, when you look at what he was able to do 19 to 28 for 176 yards, no touchdowns and interception, uh, you know, obviously team game, but I think we were hoping for, a little bit more of a, a you know a, a coming out performance from him and his opportunity on national TV against uh, against the team from the American, but um, Blake Watson, fourteen carries for seventy seven yards and a touchdown as well. Um, I don't know, it just things just really didn't come together for for Old Dominion, and you know when you look at the 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 turnovers as well, that certainly doesn't help their case. Yeah, well, Joe, it's interesting, right? I mean, listen, it's two parts of this. So you talk about Hayden Wolf's performance, and yeah, that did certainly have a fair amount to be desired. But also, I mean, ODU's run game, Blake Watson, the 14 carries with 77 yards, that wasn't exactly what you would have wanted. Then you take away the 22-yard burst, then you're looking at 13 for, what, 55. Um, still okay, but then, you know, you're not really putting the, the offense in terms of down and distance in really manageable situations. But also, another part of this, and there certainly was some chatter about this post game, at least from the ODU side of things. The officiating left a decent amount to be desired. And listen, anyone who knows me knows I am not blamed the officiating guy. You know, I, I think calls go both ways in terms of any game. You know, you can find calls that, that will go one way or the other. But in my mind, yes, the, the officiating down the stretch left a lot to be desired. But we'll just read off a couple stats that, there's no way in a game when you look at the final score 30, 30 to 17 if i read off these numbers you probably think it's going to be even worse than this total yards odu uh pretty much doubled up in terms of turnovers they lost a turnover battle two to zero time of possession tulsa won that 39 minutes to 20 minutes and first downs this was again a byproduct of really being able to establish the run on first down which tulsa did tulsa had 35 first downs odu only had 10 and again this is probably in my mind, it's when we catch most of this game, more of a credit to ODU's defense that Tulsa had 35 first downs, yet they only allowed, the uh, ODU defense only allowed 30 points. 
And, and certainly in some regards, there's very much a bend but don't break defense because they certainly had some field goal attempts. I think in my mind, Joe, probably the biggest um, that, that I saw, biggest, most egregious missed call was it looked to be a clear um, intentional grounding by Davis Brin. And I want to say that was the late third quarter in which they held Tulsa to a field goal. But had that been called, it would have been a bit of a further outfield. It would have been something like 40, 42, 43 yards instead of uh, a 30-yard field goal, which was good. But again, just – the offensive performance left a lot to be desired. And in my mind, yes, we would have wanted to see more from Hayden Wolf, but I think that was more of a byproduct of the run game, not really putting the offense in, in get good down in, in, in distant situations. Because, I mean, when guys like Zach Kuntz, two carry, excuse me, two receptions for 18 yards, Ali Jennings, very solid receiver. He finished the day with six catches for 74 yards. But again, you, you got to be able to put the offense in a situation in which you're not second and nine, third and eight, third and seven, and trying to convert. So, um, all in all, give credit to Tulsa. Good win for them. But again, uh, Tulsa kicked three field goals. <laughs> and yet you look at all those numbers that I read off for Tulsa, the fact that the ODU defense, nine of the, of the points that, uh, you know, Tulsa is winning by, what, 13 here, nine of those came on, on field goal attempts. It's a pretty solid day overall defensively. Yeah, no, totally. I think what ODU's defense is built this year is I think what we're going to end up seeing them become next year is one of the better uh, defenses with NCUSA. And there's, there's so many pieces within this uh, Ricky Ronnie team that are going to be really, really good with just a little bit more development, but uh, yeah, you know, Eric, with this game in particular, I'll, I'll admit I was traveling a little bit yesterday, so I didn't get to see too much. Uh, you, you really think the officiating paid or played that big of a factor in this one? You again, you, you've known we've done this podcast for four years. I'm not to blame the officiating mm-hmm. guy. So for me to mention it means I think that there were some calls down the stretch that I think, especially as the game, you know, ODU was really trying to fight back and, and, and really kind of muster something in terms of coming back and win the game, winning the game. There were some calls that in my mind just seemed to be a little bit shoddy, especially again, in my mind, that uh, that intentional grounding. Because I think if for that ODU defense, if they've been able to, been able to um, come off the field without allowing any points and in the field position, let's say, you know, it's a 40-something yard attempt, you miss that kick, you're probably getting the ball somewhere around the 40 to 45-yard line, short field. Um, if that would have helped things. Now, would that have helped them run the ball any better? Who knows? But just those little swings right there. In any game I've covered, I'm a huge, huge, you know, someone, I, I, a stat I like to look at are those point swings when you have a chance to come away with seven points, maybe fumble in the red zone. That's a, uh, and then the other team goes back and scores a touchdown. It's a 14 point swing the other way. And that mind that could have been a 10 point swing in ODU's way. And they didn't get it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, to your point, you're definitely not the blame, the officiating guy, but I don't know. It's interesting when you look at that, that differential and, and maybe I'll, I'll eat some crow on this one too. I said Tulsa wasn't really that impressive of a team to me, but they were able to step up in particular in the run game and, and make things happen. So I don't know on to bigger and better things for both teams at this point, but congrats to Tulsa. They finished the year seven and six. Let's talk about some bowl previews in the first one. We have the official Frisco bowl uh, Tuesday night, seven thirty Eastern on ESPN between uh, the number 24 UTSA Roadrunners and the San Diego state Aztecs, San Diego state minus three heading into this game. And also of note for UTSA, no sincere McCormick and uh, several other players 
uh, not playing in this bowl game to uh, focus on NFL draft prospects. And uh, we'll, we'll get into the, we can talk about that in a little bit, Eric, but um, for what UTSA needs to do in this game, we know San Diego state has a very strong defense, of course, led by uh, Brady Hoke, strong, off, uh, strong defensive mind there. So no real surprise that uh, they've been able to play that side of the ball extremely well. Um, but then here's the thing about this San Diego State team that I think gets overlooked a little bit, Eric. People talk about how good their punter is, Matt Areza, and for good reason. He's very good at his job. All-American, punter of the year, all this stuff. But the reason really that he's on the field so much is San Diego State's offense is, offense is not great. So if UTSA's defense is able to, to step up despite the, the losses of, of some key pieces for them and – you know, keep that offense in check and then really execute on, on special teams and counteract, you know, how good of a punter Matt Areza is and get the offense uh, in as good a position as they can for Frank Harris and those receivers to uh, make some big plays and, and get ahead early. I don't think um, San Diego state is going to, you know, be particularly suited to play from behind. So how UTSA starts this game is going to be extremely important. Okay, so you talked about some of the guys who may be missing for UTSA, and we can come into that in a minute um, as far as list of guys who may be out, right, to, due to NFL um, draft prep. I'm going to talk about a guy who we know is going to play a huge factor in their ability um, to have a chance in this game, and we know for a fact that he's going to miss the first half of this game, Joe, and that's Rashad Wisdom. That's the one that, in my mind, you got to keep an eye on. He, gets, he has to miss the first half of this game due to a targeting call in the COSA title game. That's definitely something to keep an eye on. Now you talk about UTSA's offense. Brendan Brady, people have to remember, Brendan Brady was, but, but the year before, Sincere McCormick arrived at UTSA. Brendan Brady, A, former three-star prospect, B, someone who had a fair amount of experience as a running back. So it's, it's not as if he is an incapable back. He and BJ Daniels both are guys who, um, very talented, just a matter of fact that since McCormick came in and really since he got to UTSA has been the man. I know, again, Joe, his stats overall won't wow you. I, I, he may not even have a thousand yards rushing on the ground for his career. But as someone who I've seen, I think especially in the 2018 game uh, at the Alamo Dome versus FIU, had to jog my memory there as far as which year it was, had something like 70, 80 something yards. So we've seen him when he's had to you know, have the workload perform well. And I do think he'll be up to the challenge, especially as a senior playing in what will probably be his final game at UTSA. Got to be nice for him to get the opportunity to share the workload. But we know who's going to, you know, make this thing work, right? And it's going to be Frank Harris. Frank Harris, for the better part of the season, has been overlooked in terms of Conference USA quarterbacks and overall, right? Because when you're playing a league with Bailey Zappi, it's a, a lot of the attention is going to go to him. And yet he's the guy who beat Bailey Zappi twice. And yes, the San Diego State defense is very stingy. You talked about it. A very, very stingy defense led by Brady Hoke. But I'll be very intrigued to see, not if, because I certainly believe Frank Harris is up to the task, but just how well he can perform. And I, I listen, I, I know a lot of people are counting UTSA out, but I'm giving them a chance. And I think it's going to be because of the lefty Frank Harris. Same here. You know, I think what a lot of national folks are, you know, folks who – examine college football on a national scale, maybe overlook Frank Harris for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about this year plays in league with, you know, Bailey Zappi and, and all these other guys and 
Um, and obviously, UTSA just in general, I think, gets overlooked by a lot of national uh, national folks as well. Um, but like I said, if he's able to come out and really just get on a hot streak with with Zachary Franklin and some of these other receivers early and build that lead, San Diego State's offense really does not feel like it's it's built to play from behind. Obviously, you know, there's there's so many running backs you can point to from over the years. Uh, Rashad Penny um, is probably the most recent example who now plays for the Seahawks in terms of how their offense is built around the run. And while it's been effective in spots for sure, again, when you have a competent dual threat guy like Frank Harris who can come out and put points on the board in a hurry, I don't think San Diego State is particularly well equipped to handle that. But I, I mean, I think this game is UTSA's to lose. And that's what I'm saying at the end of the day here. I, I'm picking UTSA to win. I Technically, it's an upset because San Diego State's favored by three. But ultimately, I think that's just due to, again, Vegas and national folks not really knowing what the extent of UTSA's capabilities are, which is their own fault. <laughs> Listen, uh, I, I, again, I, I've probably used this line in the podcast, Joe, but I, I had a fellow writer say to me, uh, Vegas, you know, they didn't build all those casinos out <laughs> there off of being wrong. Uh, I, I am inclined to take San Diego State in this one just because of the number of players out, but I don't think that by any means um, this is going to be, you know, an SDSU run, runaway. SDSU, I know I said that pretty quickly. San Diego State, I don't think it's going to be a runaway for them. I think UCSA is going to put up a fight, but I just think they're missing. Especially again, I can't emphasize this enough. If they're not going to have some guys on offense, you know, and especially missing guys like Tariq Woolen um, on the defensive side of the ball, it, to me, not having Rashad Wisdom is one of the better safeties in the entire nation for a first the uh, first half. That hurts them uh, tremendously. So I am picking San Diego State, but I don't think it'll be a runaway. Be excited to see how that one goes down, and then we have the Frisco Football Classic on Thursday night at or Thursday afternoon, three thirty p.m. on ESPN. Mean Green against the Miami Redhawks uh, from the MAC. Redhawks favored by three heading into this one. One thing that I'm particularly interested to see here regarding North Texas's performance is can their defense continue this hot streak that they've been on the last, you know, four, five, six games? Um, can they put the offense in a position to build a lead and, and maintain it? Um, Miami's definitely got. Uh, some deep threat guys, uh, Sorensen comes to mind. So hopefully they're able to kind of keep those in check. But, you know, I think with this Miami team's solid. So I think this game's going to be close. Um, I'm, I'm going to pick Miami just because they seem like a little bit safe of a pick due to the some of the inconsistencies that North Texas has shown throughout the year. But again, this defense, this defense and how they come out in this game is going to be monumentally important if they are going to uh, get the win here. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I'm not even 100% sure what really to make of this. I think it's going to be a very evenly matched game. I think when you look at Miami, you know, Ivan Pace Jr. and Matthew Salpek, two players on your roster over 100 tackles. When your linebacker and safety are over 100 tackles, you know that you certainly are getting plenty of opportunities in the box to make plays. So going to see how that's going to play up against a North Texas team that certainly is going to use the run to their advantage, whether it's DeAndre Torrey or uh, Ikaka Ragsdale and others definitely going to look to run the football and put Austin Ani in positions to make the throws there when they're needed. And it's, it's still out about you, Joe, it's still taking time to get used to the, 
UNT offense that you look up and they've only thrown for 2,300 yards in a season as opposed to the, you know, 4,000 yards and 40 touchdowns, still getting used to the fact that this is a, a passing attack that's pretty even, 12 touchdowns, 12 picks, right? So still getting used to the mean green running over 600 times for nearly 3,000 yards. That certainly will be a formula to success. But in my mind, it's really going to be how can the UNT defense perform? They've really rounded out into form over the past five, six weeks. Guys like Katie Davis, Deshaun Gaddy, you know, Deion Noville, others. Um, Grayson Murphy leads the team in sacks at seven and a half. And then, of course, his, his brother, Gabe Murphy, with six. So that really, in my mind, is going to be what makes a difference. And maybe it's the homer me, but I'm going to go with North Texas. Yeah, it's it's seems understandable that a lot of people don't necessarily really know what to make of this game. Because when you look at the when you look at this game, it was basically just added so that every team that reads the bowl eligibility could play in a bowl game. I mean, heck, look at the logo for this game. It's just the outline of the state of Texas, and they colored it green. Like someone put this to, like this game was basically put together overnight. Um, so like it's understandable that folks don't really necessarily know what to make of it. I'm not mad at it. More football is more football at the end of the day. Um, but it almost kind of makes sense. And, you know, it's, it's almost, uh, it's funny. The color that they used on the logo is like basically North Texas is uh, like that, you know, that CMYK green that they use exactly. So like good omen question mark, but um, yeah, I, I think North Texas is going to play well. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'll pick Miami just because from what I've seen of them, um, they're a very commanding team up front. So hopefully that's uh North Texas team can play against that and, you know, come through in a big moment for them. But yeah, no, I'm not going to lie. I, I hadn't seen the logo for this game, but I had to get a chuckle out of that. Cause I just wonder you and I, again, working in sports, know this, the amount of marketing and things of that nature that goes into these bowl games with corporate sponsorships and others. Yeah. I'm not surprised at this. Like, uh, what do we do for a logo of this? Uh, Texas. Yeah. We'll just do that. That someone's job on the committee for this bowl game is just to say the word Texas every couple minutes, and they're like, got it. <laughs> Give that guy another pay raise. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What's the answer to everything? Texas. Like, all right, you'll, you're going to do great in college football. All right, so that wraps up uh, bowl season for the most part. Obviously, we'll, we'll come back soon to talk about uh, the recaps for these last two bowl games as well as some other offseason stuff. Uh, but thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter at underdog dynasty, uh, you know, and of course our personal Twitters are at J O E H I O underscore and at Eric C Henry underscore. Um, if you like, you can uh, leave some feedback for us on Apple and Spotify as well. Uh, those are probably the two easiest platforms to find the podcast. Uh, if you are just listening on the site um, and at under or rather, underdogdynasty.com for uh, G5 football content every single day, especially now, because uh, we've got uh, a lot more to go because the G5 team's in the playoffs now. Uh, happy football watching, everybody. Happy holidays to the haters and lovers alike, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. 